Welcome to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film, proudly in collaboration with Brick Studios. I'm Jose Pusella. Join me as I take you on this audio journey with Heath Davis on the making of his new crowdfunded film, Christmas. Welcome back to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film. As always, I'm Jose, but I'll be changing up the intro for this 12th episode as I'd like to take a moment and reflect on the significance of the number 12, as it cannot be understated. The 12 apostles, 12 months in a calendar year, 12 Olympians in Greek mythology, 12-inch subs, 12 glazed donuts, vitamin B12, 12 gauge shoddies because, yeah, shoddies are good, mate. <laughs> the 12th man and 12-year-old whiskey. But none has a deeper connection to this podcast than the 12 days of Christmas. And this 12th episode of Christmas, this podcast gives to thee Steve Lamarckin. How are you, Steve? Thank you for joining I'm me. Well, thanks. That's a sensational intro. <laughs> 12, mate. 12. Brilliant. 12, indeed. And uh, did I pronounce the surname right? Lamarquant. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's a hard one to get around. Because I know Lamarquant. it's like uh, you got to take the French out of it, right? You do, yeah. Well, unless you're French, of course. You know, of course. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, and, from, it's from the Channel Islands. It's from Jersey. And, right. Uh, and in Jersey, it's like Smith over there. And uh, it, it's very, very popular, very common. But it is Le Marquant if you're French and Le Marquant if you're Australian. Romain will appreciate that. And if you don't mind, just before we kick off proceedings, I just want to get some housekeeping out of the way. If you enjoyed our last episode as much as Fenno enjoys a craft beer from the beer shed, crack open a tinny, <laughs> slide on over to our Facebook page or Twitter at Diary of a Crowd F1. Like, follow, subscribe, share and repeat. So the momentum for this podcast and Heath's fourth film continues to spread Christmas cheer. I'm nervous, guys, because uh, Steve has me nervous for no other reason. Probably fanboying a bit. You've done well, Isaac. You've done well. <laughs> and I've got a little bit more that I've prepared. So look, for the listeners who may not be aware, Steve has had guest and lead roles in a plethora of Aussie TV shows from Hone Away, Underbelly Razor, Les Norton, to name but a few. A prolific theatre actor and noted co-writer, producer, director, as well as starring in the immensely successful theatrical production of He Died with a Falafel in His Hands. That was based on the book by um, John Birmingham, correct? Correct. And of course, a captivating and intuitive character actor, both internationally as Cyril Beach in the US film Vertical Limit, to local features like Waza in Gregor Jordan's Two Hands, The Tall Thug in Jeremy Sims' Last Train to Frio, for which he were nominated for Best Lead Actor at both the AFI and Film Critics Circle Awards fantastic and of course as longtime collaborator on Heath's previous three films Broke, Bookweek and Locusts now returning for the Superfector to play Chris Flint aka Santa in Heath's fourth film Christmas of course it's more than Santa but you know. <laughs> so again mate I'm extremely honored and grateful for you to be joining us and thank you for the patience as I kind of went over the tip of the creative iceberg so to speak <laughs> thanks Isaac nice work so look, I'd like to go back if we can to Theatre Nepean, uh, where you studied and first started out. What year was that? Uh, started 1989, I believe. And then I got kicked out at the end of first year uh, for being a rat bag. I, um, I put one of our lecturers up against the wall and threatened to biff him. Uh, I got done for plagiarism. And so I got turfed out for, for that, uh, for an essay I wrote, which I sort of copied off one of my girlfriends out there at the time. And uh, so I went and worked as an office removalist for a year. And then I went back the next year and had to do the, the, the subject that I'd failed and got kicked out for, did that again. And then went in, uh, in it so sort of got put a year behind and went back in and did uh, second and third year after that. So yeah, I made a, a four year course out of a three year course, basically. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Can I ask um, what the essay was that you had? I have did no idea because I didn't read it. <laughs> All I, did Fair was, enough. I actually got the girl 
um, who had written it to photocopy it in her handwriting and just write out the cover page for me. Unfortunately, it went to, there were 20 lecturers it could have gone to and it went to the same lecturer who had marked her paper. So as she was reading it, she went, I've seen this before. And then she, and then she looked into it and realised that I plagiarised. I was, um, at the, just to excuse myself, at the time, to get through first year at acting school, I was delivering newspapers um, early in the morning. So I was getting up at three o'clock in the morning wow. and I was going and delivering the, the Telegraph and the, the Herald um, all around um, where I was living at Castle Hill and then right. I'd go and do 12 or 13 hours at acting school. So um, I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was up against it because I wasn't at the, wasn't getting any um, study or any assistance at all. So I had to deliver papers to do it. And so, yeah, I was getting about three hours sleep a night for wow. 16 hours at uni. Yeah. And after 12 months of that, it sort of took its toll. So at the end of the year, I just said, look, Jane, can you please just, just give me your essay and I'll photocopy it. And I didn't ever do that right. So I got busted and then kicked out for a year. So, yeah. I understand Heath and Daniel uh, both studied at Theatre and Pena UWS. And you weren't you know, without some well-renowned alums that came out of that campus. Can you name a couple? And um, did they come, were they in your graduating year? No, none of them. Um, David Wenham, I think, was probably the most famous. Um, he was in one of the the, um, the first years to go through, I think. He might have been right. the second. So he would have been out before I started. Um, and then Joel Edgerton is a, another a famous alum, of course. Um, he was in second year when I was in third year. He was a year behind me. And then, of course, the Umbilical Brothers, who I did actually see. Uh, that's David and Shane. When I was in first year, David and Shane, the Umbilical Brothers, did their, their, their piece as a movement piece in second year. And oh, that, wow. of course, then became the Umbilical Brothers. So we saw their very first um, incarnation of that, which is absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, yeah. I love those guys. Absolutely brilliant. Very, very clever boys. Very funny fellas. Yeah, yeah. Look, if we could, I just want to jump ahead and go into the theatrical production of He Died with a Falafel in His Hands. How long did that mm. run for? Um, eight years. Wow. From 1995 to 2003, yeah, 2003. So, yeah. So, basically, the... It just it feels it sounds like it kind of steamrolled and it just kept growing and growing from. Yeah, well, funnily enough, there was actually a um, there's a Labor government initiative to get a whole bunch of actors off the off the dole and into into work. Um, a bloke called David McCubbin got these guys together, so they got about uh, 17 actors together, and then they knitted the show. Um, I was one of those actors. I sort of came up. Someone else had read Falafel and said this would make a great play. And we said, let's do it. So um, I wrote it with the other 17 people, directed it, um, acted in it as well. Then when that all sort of disbanded, um, the play was just sitting there. So I went, let's get my own company together. And uh, we got it going with a few of the people who were sort of the instigators of it as well. And then, as I say, it went for eight years. And it was sort of lucky because that kept me in the industry because for in, in that time, I wasn't getting a lot of work. And it was sort of in the middle of that time, in the, about four years or five years into that eight years that I started to get, I've got two hands and then did Vertical Limit, did a whole bunch of other films. Um, and I think I would have left the industry if I didn't have Falafel because that kept me employed and yes. financial for eight years when I probably would have left the industry and done something else. So I was very, very fortunate. But that was the great thing about going through Nepean, as you just alluded to, because we were taught there how to get a show up. So not dissing neither people, but often they're sort of taught to be stars a little bit if you get out there and just an actor. But we were taught to how to write a play, how to direct, how to uh, build the set, how to publicise, how to do the lighting. We were all-rounded theatre practitioners and that is what kept me um, in the industry, I think, when I probably could have gone elsewhere. That's brilliant. So it allowed you to, it, it gave you a, a base um, of a very well-rounded skill set. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we knew how to get a theatre show up from scratch and, and get it going. I was very lucky in that I had great base material. Um, there's not a lot of shows that go for eight years, and that's more through good luck than good management, I think. But, um, but, but, but certainly, if I hadn't had that training in the team, I would have, uh, would have missed out on all of that. I think luck plays a component in so many things. Um, and look, I don't know if it, in this next question that I have, but that's an element. Um, was it from 2007 to 2009, you acted alongside Kate Blanchett in Benedict Andrews' War of the Roses? Um, yeah. Could you talk about what that time of your life was like and what was it, what was it like working alongside Kate Blanchett? Yeah, so, so in 2007, um, they, the Sydney Theatre Company approached me and said, do you want to join the Actors Company? which was, uh, I think, 13 actors who were basically a, an ensemble um, doing repertory sort of theatre. And they said, do you want to join the company? One of the blokes is leaving. And I went, yeah, okay. Um, I've always had a bit of a, a love-hate relationship with the theatre, to be honest. I, um, I love doing falafel because it was done in a pub. We were allowed to drink, smoke, carry on, swear, do whatever you wanted. Uh, that's my kind of theatre. Um, theatre itself, I think is it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scary medium, you know what I mean? It, 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 if you get it wrong, you can get it so fucking wrong. It's so, such a hard thing to get right. And uh, so I've always been a bit wary about it. But when I was offered with the STC three years of continual work on a wage every week for three years, it's hard to say no. Yeah. So I went, yeah, okay. And uh, we did a couple of shows that weren't, weren't, weren't too flash. And then the last show we did was War of the Roses, which, as you say, was the eight hours of Shakespeare with uh, directed by Benedict Andrews and alongside Kate Blanchett. So it's hard to say no to that, obviously. Um, yeah, look, it was, uh, it was a pretty intense experience mm. <laughs> um, uh, for a lot of reasons. Nine months is a long time to spend on, on one show. That was six months rehearsal and three months performance. Wow. Um, it was amazing working with Kate because you see that she's just like any other human being. There was a, a day where we're in the middle of rehearsal and, you know, she sort of was just looking at it and just threw a script down and went, I can't fucking do it and turned around and walked out and was like, oh, my God, she's just like the rest of us. She's <laughs> cheerful like the rest of us. Because there's something about Kate. She's just, just, just magic, you know, when you just see her yes. just say lines. It, it, I, I, it, it is the X factor. You can't explain mm. what makes someone that good and that, you know, because it, it, it is just something that, She's just born with, you know what I mean? It's amazing to watch. It's amazing to watch. There was somewhere that I read, and you can obviously, because some of these things I've taken from IMDb, so hopefully we can debunk some things or we can actually yeah. say, no, that's true. Um, now, is it true that you rode around Australia on a motorcycle? Mm -hmm. um, was that before or after completing your studies? And how long was that? that? Well, that was before. So when most people went to uh, schoolies, uh, yes. they go up to Byron Bay or whatever, I'd been saving my money. And instead of going to schoolies, I bought myself a bus ticket. So I started off on a bus. I got the Greyhound bus from Sydney to Perth because that was the end of 1986. It was just nice. about the, um, the, the America's Cup in Perth and Fremantle. And so I thought I'll go over there, seek my fame and fortune. There'd be lots of work on offer and I'll just sort of hang out over there instead of going to schoolies. And I, I didn't come back for, for another two years. So uh, yeah, worked in Perth, got some jobs, got got some jobs, got got a bit of money saved together. Then I bought myself a motorbike and just started travelling north, right up the uh, up the west coast. Worked on rockmelon farms, worked on barges, worked on cattle stations, uh, worked in pubs, worked on all sorts. I just I had about forty five jobs over over a two year period, and uh, got a lot a lot of life experience. And, Indeed. Then um, I was coming back down, and then I uh, mum who went on to school, she had cancer, she had breast cancer and had a mastectomy and whatnot. And she was in remission while I was away. 
And then she rang and said, look, it's just come back. So it's oh. good if you want to come back. So, um, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I wouldn't mind going to an acting school, maybe. And she uh, put in an application form for me at Nepean and at NIDA as well. Um, I got into both, as it turned out, but I went to Nepean because it was uh, close to where we were living at the Western Suburbs. And um, and then I did first year, as I say, I got kicked out. And then that next year that I took off when I was working as a removalist, mum actually died. Uh, oh, man. And it was the next year that I went back and sort of got back into it. So it was actually all sort of kismet, I suppose. It all sort of worked out yeah. quite nicely in hindsight. Um, but it's pretty all pretty tense and tough and stressful at the time. But, um, but yeah, it all worked out nicely. Um, yeah. Look, I love that, uh, you know, as much as sometimes we may not agree when we hear our parents say, you know, our parents know best. It sounds like mm-hmm. in that case, mum knew best. My mum always knew best. Yeah, yeah, my mum always knew best. The guys, I was a rat bag as a kid. There's no doubt about it. I, I got kicked out of school as well. I got kicked out of school in year 11. And I went away to sea on a merchant navy ship for, for six months or so. Then I came back and did finish school. Then I got kicked out of uni. So, <laughs> look, I, I was always a rat. I always did things the long, hard way. But I, I think it's it's... So it's worked out for the best. Absolutely. And it's made you the person you are today. And look, we have this, we have this saying in Spanish and I'll say it and then I'll translate it, which is nadie te quita lo bailado, which means nobody can take away it translated directly. It means nobody can take away what you've danced, but what they're saying is no one can take away the life you've lived and what you've experienced. So exactly. You know, I absolutely love that, mate. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And so on this, you know, cross-country journey that I don't even know if you expected it to last for two years, as long as it did, um, you must have some memorable experiences and maybe not so memorable, but is there one particular highlight kind of that sticks with you when you think back to that? No, there are quite a few. Yeah, there, there, was, there was just adventure after adventure, um, which I sort of went looking for as well. But I, I don't know, some highlights, I guess, um, riding a motorbike. 470 kilometers through bull dust where you just keep falling over, you know, just trying to get the bike down there. Um, I had a job at Port Hedland where I was um, a bouncer at uh, the Port Hedland pub, the South Hedland pub on Friday nights. And Friday night was boxing night. Right. And the last fight of the night was a white bloke versus an Aboriginal bloke. And this is at like half past 11 at night. Everyone's had 50 beers. Everyone's <laughs> there, they're Jeff Fennick, you know what I mean? So, so I've just got a cat that's just coming here. Hello, Missy. That's all right. Yeah, that's 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 Mishy, our cat is coming to look lovely at this time of night. She starts looking for me. And um, and the last fight of the night was always, as I say, a white guy versus Aboriginal bloke, and I was bouncing. And um that yeah, after about the third week, uh anyway, there was was an incident that happened which I probably shouldn't really go into too much because it's sort of it's a bit of course racial racially motivated, uh, as much as anything. Do you know what I mean? Um, but it basically wind up with me and the other bouncer being locked in the kitchen. Uh, while about 30 blokes were trying to get in there to beat the shit out of us. Wow. And the cops had to come and get us out. Uh, that was just a, a standard Friday night at South Headland, basically. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, there were so many things. As I say, I was away for two years. There, there were so many stories that were sort of hard. But, but cumulatively, I think they, for me, acting is about life experiences, about what, you, what you've experienced. It's about what you have experienced in your life that you bring to the table, that you can bring to different characters. And, and those two years, for me, were... So formative. I learned yeah. so much in that time, and um, I hung out with bikies as well. Um, you know, which I, I was in a film. My first film was called Two Hands. Yes, uh, where I played, right. I played a sort of bikey sort of character, and that was very much based on a bloke that I spent a lot of time with. Um, we did a bit of, I can't really say, but stuff that was quite unsafe. Sure, anyway, sure, you know sure. What I mean? and, and a bit illegal. You know, so I was sort of been down that path, but I think it's held me good uh, in, in good stead 
down, down, down the track when I play some of the characters that I play. I think it's referred to as a research. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's, right exactly. that's what it was. Research. And look, I hope that this research that I've done here kind of uh, either bodes true or false. So, and I'm going to quote this. So, IMDb indicates your first job was a TV commercial for Arnott's Ruffles. Is that true? It was. It's true. Okay. And it, so, it was banned. It was banned a couple of days later. Yeah, they're right. Yeah. That's what I wanted to ask because they, you know, they say they just quote, this is straight from IMDb. They go, they say the ad was banned a day after its release, but they don't explain why other than referencing the word sacrilege. Well, <laughs> so They're right. The IMDb never lies. Of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except it says it says that I was in sixty three episodes of Sea Princesses, which I've never been. Right? So they, they, it does lie. Um, that ad was for Arnott's Ruffles. Uh, so it's myself and a, another actor called Steve Vella, and we were the disciples on either side of Jesus, waiting for Jesus to turn up. But he's late; he doesn't turn up. And so I go, "Well, fuck this!" So I pull out a pack of Arnott's Ruffles, a twelve pack. We go back to twelve. We oh, go nice. back to twelve, Jose. Right. So I pull out a 12-pack of Arnott's Ruffles and there's one for all of the disciples and of we course. eat them while we're waiting for Jesus. And so that is our last supper is eating Arnott's Ruffles. And, of course, the Christians all went, oh. God, do that, sacrilegious. And 24 hours later, it was banned. And I'm pretty sure that Arnott's got the publicity that they were craving. So I'm sure they did either way. I absolutely thank my, you for – sorry. No, that's what no, – because that was my very, very first job ever. And, um, and so they, there were photos of it in the paper and stuff. It was a big kerfuffle about it. And I said, oh, this is amazing. I've just been an ad and I'm already on the news and I'm in the paper. This is fucking great. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> you know isn't it? No news is uh, good news or just bad press is just good press, really. Well, isn't that what Oscar Wilde said? It doesn't matter what they're saying as long as they're talking about it. Exactly. Right I, look, thank you for clarifying that because I tried forever trying to find this ad that was quoted as sacrilege and fair enough. Um, all right. So what I'd love to ask is I asked this to Jai from the Beer Shed. And we're going to go back to, you mentioned Two Hands. That was the first feature. And I wanted to ask, did you get a sense during the time that you spent on set with um, Heath Ledger that there was something special about this then teen? 100%. 100%. It was, it was almost a foregone conclusion that he was going to be what he became. Um, actually, I, 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 I'm surprised. He became a better actor than I thought he would ever become. Um, I agree. With his Brokeback Mountain and, and the Joker, um, yeah. absolutely fantastic. And I never would have thought that he would be that. I always thought he was sort of destined more for a, I don't know, I, I don't know how to, how to put it, but more of a maybe a Leo DiCaprio or just, just a standard sort of leading man kind of thing that he wouldn't sort of necessarily go off and do these amazing fucking performances, which he turned in. Um, but he always had that 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 something, absolutely had that X factor. And the moment you met him, just went, whoa, look at you. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone expected him to, you know, there was so much pressure and he was even, and of course, it's the late um, Heath Ledger and absolute respect because he was a legend um, yeah. and recognised that. Um, but there was so much disdain against the initial casting for him in The Joker. And, you know, for me personally, I can't see anyone else now. Just like people yeah. were looking at him going, no one can now do Jack Nicholson. Well, you know, the, the performance, the, it's cataclysmic, his characterization that he does. Absolutely. That's, you know, yeah. it's just the embodiment. Yeah. And I think it'll always be hard to move on. Yeah, yeah. But you could argue that uh, Joaquin Phoenix did a pretty good job in, in his version. Obviously, completely different. Exactly. And then it comes down to personal which, preference. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But go the Aussies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, but, but, but with Heath, it was funny because when I first met him, um, 
like well, actually no, not when I first met him. So we did two hands, and then about six or nine months later, we're in um, a Sundance together uh, for two hands premiere. Right. And he had in that time just shot uh, ten things I had about you. Yes. And but the thing was that he had staved off. So after two hands, after he'd done a whole bunch of stuff, the Americans were just after him. They just wanted him for this, 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 and this. And he had turned down about ten or fifteen jobs because they were all kind of knight's tale kind of jobs, although the good-looking young fella. And he wanted something that had a bit more, bit more room. And so he, he risked it himself like at that stage, saying, no, no, no. And he was like, fuck, I'm never going to work again. And then 10 things came and he took that because it was perfect for him. Yeah. Um, but he, 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 he sort of always, has always had a lot of integrity. He, he's always wanted to be something bigger than just the good-looking young spunk who can sort of say a few lines, you know what I mean? So, yeah. He definitely got there. Um, yeah. I wanted to skip ahead if we can to 2016 and you can correct me if I'm wrong. And I want to jump into broke. Um, when and how did you become involved in Heat's first feature? Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. 2013, I think 2014. Uh, we just moved up from the city up here to the central coast. And, um, this bloke gets in touch with me on you know, the messenger. Oh, hi, my name's Heath. I know your sister because he, um, uh, I think it, uh, they're both teachers. Heath is a teacher. My sister is now, um, Emma is now the, the principal, actually, at uh, uh, one of the high schools in the Blue Mountains. Right. And so they had sort of met each other um, through through there. And, and and so I don't know exactly, but anyway, Pete sort of said to Emma, is it okay? We're getting in touch with Steve. And says, I'm sure it is. And so he did. I got a message in my Facebook. And as, as I often did around that time, particularly, like sort of when something comes out, you often get, you know, just, um, you just get a, a million sort of, you know, invites to read this, have a look at that, have a look at that. And this is just one of many. And I said, well, I'll have a look at that. Of course, I didn't. Six weeks later, he messaged me again. Listen, um, my name's Heath. I sent you a message, you know, and I said, well, <laughs> hey, can you read it? I said, oh, for fuck's sake, I'll have a look at it. And I read it and I went, this is really good. <laughs> this is really good. And uh, and so I got back to him about, I didn't want to get, to get back to him straight away because it makes, you, it makes him think you're too keen. So I waited about four or five days and then said, yes, yeah, it's, it's not bad, mate. It's all right, you know, so where do you want to take it from here? And then just sort of steamrolled from there. And then six months later, I was in Gladstone shooting the film. You know what I mean? And um, I think it was, look, it was just such a great character and a unique story. And and I just, yeah, I just loved, loved everything about it. So I said, yeah, absolutely. And as you've said before, I've now done three films with him and coming up to four. So there you go. Look, I think there'd be no doubt that in your motorcycle trekking days around Oz, you, as you mentioned, you know, you came across a spectrum of characters, perhaps some more rough and tumble than others. So would you say that um, BK or Ben Kelly's character from Broke was kind of an amalgamation of um, some of these personalities you crossed paths with? Yeah, it was. It was an amalgamation of people I've crossed paths with, also an amalgamation of people I hadn't. Uh, people like Owen Craigie, Nathan Hydemarsh, guys who were in before, who had been in the, in, in the media as having pissed their careers away. Guys who were very good rugby league players, made a lot of money. Um, and then, you know, they were quite open about it and sort of post their, their, their devastation that they had literally put their money into, into pokies and pissed it away. So we had a chat with a couple of those blokes. I read all of their all of their interviews and, and just sort of watched them. So it was blokes on you and it was also blokes that I had known but were very much in the, in the spotlight. And uh, so it was an amalgamation of probably about five or six characters, I suppose. Yeah, right. plus what I bring to it as well. And, and I, I should also mention, I had spoken to a lot of guys who, or people who had had massive um, gambling issues as well. Because the whole thing was about the lead character. Yes. And so I spoke to two or three friends of mine who have had massive, massive poker machine addictions just to 
sort of trying to get my head around the way they just the way it works, just the, the psychology behind uh, that sort of addiction. And to try to do a just representation as well. Yeah. That um, yeah. doesn't come across as uh, something that's a parody. Yeah, yeah, or twee or, or just paying lip service to something. Yeah, it, 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 that's, and that's where Heath is great because he, he comes up with really real characters, you know, visceral characters and visceral situations, and, and, he, and he's not afraid to go there. And, um, yeah, I, I think it was a, a really important story. And we will, we will touch on that. Um, and, of course, like all discussions, the paths circle back to Christmas. How did you become involved in this fourth feature? Because, I mean, Facebook wasn't again. Or- <laughs> no, well, basically, yeah, just Heath. Because I've, I've done, I've done been in all of Heath's films. This, is, this will be his fourth film. So he's done three. I've been in all three of them. It was um, a book week as well. I just had a little bit at the end of that. And then Locust, yes. of course, the last one, which is the first film he directed, which hasn't written. Uh, Locust, that's right. That's that Locust, that's right. But he's written Art Christmas as well. So look, he just sort of said, look, it's time, it's time we did a film together, a Slim, which is my nickname, my, my initials, yes. S-L-E-M. So Slim, it's time we did a film together again. I thought, yeah, cool. And he said, I think I've got something here. We had a couple of ideas um, sort of floating around. There's another one about some, um, some uh, the dish lickers, about the, the, the greyhounds as well that we're sort of toying with. But, but this one's right. up the head. And, um, and he sent me the script and said, Susie, Susie Pryor's on board and Hannah Joy from the, uh, from the, the middle kids as well. That's right. Band. And um, had a read and went, I can, it's great. Let's do it. And, uh, and it was all systems go until, of course, COVID jumped in and, yeah, kick us all into the back seat. So yeah, uh, it is a good time though, kind of at the hiatus, and I know he'll be retooling some elements, and you know everyone can kind of get a mindset yep. for it. Um, I wanted to just go back quickly with uh, BK's character, because um, uh, would you agree his battle with gambling and the addiction not dissimilar really to Chris Flint's fight with sobriety? Yeah, um, absolutely. Do you think that yeah. these two guys, given their proclivity to feed these demons, that they would have probably um, hung around the same circle. Yeah, and I think you should probably bring um, the book week uh, Cutler. What was his name? Um, the one that Al Dukes played. I mean, Mr. Cutler, his name. Yes. Well, so, so they're the three feature films that Pete has written, and I think you'd be safe to say that that all three of those are sort of a um, a mix of Heath's personality in there. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I'm not saying that he's a gambling addict or that. Of course not. But but his demons, he Heath, who like all good writers and directors, does have his demons. Absolutely, and as he, we all do. And he has, a, has an amazing way of bringing those demons and putting them onto the screen and in all different guises. And that could be Ben Kelly or Mr. Cutler or, or Chris, as you say, um, in, in, this, in this film as well. So they've all got demons, issues, and they and it's how they deal with them. And I think it's, uh, to me, I think it's therapy for me to a certain well, extent. You know what I, mean? I love we're going down I mean, this path because I want to explore something further that I, that I was preparing, yeah. hoping it went down this way. But I wanted oh, yeah. to add, look, thematically, the characters of BK and Chris, we've mentioned they share commonalities with addiction, self-sabotage, yeah. family, yeah. and redemption yeah. through sacrifice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as you mentioned, they speak, this speaks not only about Heath as a writer and the emotional sandbox through which he builds story worlds, but mm-hmm. to the actors who connect with the work. Um, Absolutely. So... I wanted to know, was there a specific element of this character, Chris Flint, that drew you to want to play him or portray him? Yeah, for sure. Look, like all the characters I play, most of my characters are broken in some way. Um, I find that very attractive to, to play from an acting point of view. Yes. Uh, the more broken the human being, the more attracted I am to them from a, from a performance point of view. Um, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, I think, A, because I can do it. 
Um, I, I've always been able to portray those kind of characters in, in various guys, like in men's group as well. I played a really fucked up guy in, in that as well. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but that was one of the most fucked up guys I've played. And I enjoyed, and last time to Freo as well. Um, yes. And, and, and I've been asked a lot of questions about that film particularly. And, and so my stock answer for that is, you know, why do you play characters like that? And, uh, well, Dustin Hoffman put it nicely as well. He said, you have a lot more fun playing the bad guys, which mm-hmm. I do. And I also, my shtick, if you like, my, my, what I present to the audience, what I think my strength is, is that I can play these kind of deeply fucked up characters, but I feel I can make them likable. And if you can bring a character like the guy from Last Train to Frio, who's a deeply unlikable character, but mm. actually get into people's head and say, hey, look, I might be doing these terrible things, but I'm actually a decent guy. Do you like me? And if you can get people to like you um, when you're a fucked up character, to me, I've done my job. Do you know what I mean? Because it's yeah. really messing with people's heads. And that's, and that's pretty much what I've been trying to do for the last 25 years. Because I kept, even with two hands, you know what I mean? You get, you get you know, it's a fun character, but he's still a bad bloke who, you know, robs banks for a job, but you've got to make him likable. So people go, yeah, good on you. And it's good to get people rooting for the bad guy, which is what I try to do. No matter how, like with Chris, in, I won't give any spoilers, but he's of course. a reprehensible character. But I want people to be able to like him. So they're sort of going, oh, I shouldn't be rooting for this guy, but I am. You know, yeah. and that's what I try to do. To to, to make bad dudes likable is basically what I view as my job. And, and and you do it, man. I, absolutely. And I, I purposely was not going to last train to free or just because there are so many um discussions and interviews around that. Um absolutely, so please, yeah. I don't want you to feel that I was ignoring no, that no, for no, any particular reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it's the same with Broke. I mean, you know, because in Broke he, he you know he makes some very questionable decisions and he's not necessarily a likable guy. He does some some bad shit. But if you can once again if you can bring the audience with you and so that when he does finally go to jail at the end they go, oh my God, that's terrible. Exactly. There is a there's always a redemption that he brings yeah. and whether Absolutely. it's the one that you want or not, it's the one that the yeah. character deserves. Which is like life, you know, and that's why I Absolutely. also to, to men's group as well, because my character in that, there were eight, I think seven or eight characters, but my character had no redemption at all. My character actually winds up worse than when he started, even though the whole film is about trying to help men out. And I think that is, 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 is it's great because that's the way life works. Life is not always a Hollywood ending. You know Correct. I mean? and, and I think that's what Heath understands as well. And look, so speaking of understanding and what you bring to characters, can you tell me what's the process or processes perhaps um, that you utilize when preparing yourself for a character? Because I would like to look at a bit of the actual study of um, the acting element for these characterizations. Yeah, yeah this is where I'll let people down. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's fine. I, I, I don't really. Um, I learn my lines and I find that when I'm learning my lines is when I make my decisions. You know right. What I mean? Like, like, like. I'm serious. I mean, if you've got this block of lines to learn, you're learning. You're going, oh, okay, that's what he means by that. I oh, say so that, that. Therefore, okay. And so, I'm sort of figuring out the character how to say my lines as I'm learning them. If that makes sense. So I'm fairly instinctive, because the thing is that once you get into a room, it, it doesn't matter what, whether it's a play or whether it's a film or a TV show. You could be as prepped as as you want to be, but when you get on set and you're with the other actors and with the director and the DOP and the lighting and you're in set and in costume, everything changes. So you might go in there with every preconceived idea, this is how it's going to be, this is how it's going to play out. It's bullshit because once you get in there, it all changes. And if you're not completely um, willing to adapt and, and, and just literally go with the flow, then you're fucked. And, right. and I think that's what sort of makes me 
and are okay active is that I just sort of go in with a completely open mind and whatever happens, happens. Because an actor might just change one line when he's giving it to you or they're giving it to you and it completely changes the whole scene. And if you just sort of go with what you've got planned, then it's just going to be a dead dog in the water. So you've got to be so just willing to adapt and, and literally go with the flow. And I think that's what makes for a better actor and particularly with dealing with his stuff because a lot of his stuff is in as well. Um, like in Broke, a lot of that stuff was just the actors just sort of riffing with what was on the page. You know, right. It really was. A lot of that was just, just actors riffing. And if you're not sort of open to that, then you're not going to go anywhere either. So, um no, thank yeah, you for that. Yeah. No, thank you. Because uh, that re for me, this cements reinforces from the introduction that you are an intuitive uh, person when it comes to when it comes to this. Um, I think and, so. Yeah. You know, and you're more than an okay actor, and a lot of people would <laughs> would would agree yeah. to that, mate. Um, yeah, yeah, but but I don't spend too much time making hard and fast decisions because I know that those decisions are just going to get thrown out the window when you actually get into two. Okay, so there's no like, uh, what is it, Lee Strasberg or um... yeah, the, the the method acting? Yeah, no, yes. Look, I actually I actually find method actors pretty boring to be honest, and I've come across a few of them in my time. Um, I don't think it achieves anything. All it does is get the cast and crew just offside and freaked out, and wonder what the hell is going to happen next. I, I think any actor worth the salt should just be able to rock up and and you, you do the acting when it's action, and then when it's cut, you muck around, you fart on your. It has a, there's a good blooper. For me, farting on Tom Budge's face in that last time, <laughs> three hour, I've done this really intense scene and I can feel this fart brewing. And then right at the end, I've just got my ass in right in front of his face. And I've gone, yeah. And that was cut. And so, you know what I mean? So you got to sort of, I don't know. Look, I mean, I, I think people, there were two schools of thought. There were some directors and, and actors and that who think that it's more than a hobby. It, it's, it's life and death. You've got to really be serious about, about your art and where you're going with it. And then right. other people sort of go, well, Fuck it, you know what I mean? It's 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 art. It's it's fun. We should be here having a good time. And I, I look, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. And and yeah, that's just the way I've always always approached it. So yeah, that's beautiful, man. I love that. Look in the in the second podcast interview that I had with Heath, he informed us that he likes the cast early to allow for table reads, so the mm-hmm. cast familiarizes themselves with each other and the subtext yeah. of the work. Uh, he used the yeah. phrase, "I've always been a guy who likes a bit of gravy with his meat and potatoes." So do you enjoy, because you obviously were saying you like to go through the lines and not so much, uh, well, look, I, I don't want to be dismissive of what you were, what you were saying, but the process of the table read, um, do you enjoy that element? And what's that gravy that Keith might be talking about that you'll bring for this character? Oh, fuck those. No, only Heath would know that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, table reads are informative, but, it, but it's more like, like I, I think back. <laughs> Some gray box. Table read. <laughs> the table read we had for broke in, in Gladstone and Max and I nearly punched the shit out of each other. Wow. <laughs> and Claire was there going, oh fuck, is this going to be like this for the whole shit? It was just one thing. <laughs> but I just said to I just said to Max, look, I said to Heath, look, if he says that line that way, then I can't go this way. And then he, Max is like, well, I'll say the line the way I went. I didn't mean it like that. And it was just on for young and old. It was like fucking <laughs> hell. So that was our table read. Look, a table read is informative because it tells you what, what you need to change. You know what I mean? And so when we did the table read, Claire, Max and I, once Max and I had kissed the mate up, we yes. sat around the dinner table that night without Heath and said, well, this works, this doesn't. And then we can sort of go, well, this is what we think we need to do. And then when we turn up to shoot that on the day, we say to Heath, well, look, this is our idea. This is what we think might work here and there. But but I, I think Heath can see that actors, and I think more directors, maybe this is such an actor thing to say, but I think that more directors should maybe put more faith in 
in actors and what they bring to the table as far as dialogue and that are concerned. Because the whole trick is to make, as an actor, is to make the dialogue, to make the words your own, to make it sound like, like you're saying them. Yes. And sometimes you need to change them. And some writers are really resistant to that and it makes it really fucking hard. You know, like some, I've worked on a couple of films where you haven't been able to change a word, let alone the order of the words or whatever. And then, hey, you just sort of say what you want. But, and I found that really restrictive because you've got to be able to make the words fit your mouth and fit your character and what you've got. And, and, and that's where Heath is great because he allows you to do it. And as an actor, I find where you can bring an element of impro- improvisation to it helps me a lot. I think that speaks volumes um, of him then from where he wants to take the relationship, especially on set and treat it like a family. And obviously the collaboration that he allows you guys. Yeah. 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 Look, Collaboration is, in Australian film, I think particularly, is so important because you haven't got much money. And so you want to make everything as good as, as, good as you can. And, and I think Heath is great in that way. As I've just said, there are some writers and directors who are highly collaborative and some not at all. And I know which I prefer. And I'd much, yeah, much, much prefer to work with Heath any day of the week. Before we round this off, I am curious if you could uh, just mention, because I had heard somewhere, um, if you could explain a story that occurred, I don't know, it was on a mountaintop and it was on, I think it was Beyond Borders. That was the uh, American film. Is that the one? Oh, it was on Vertical Limit. I think, uh, was it? Oh, sorry. I thought, sorry, well, my well, mistake. Well, that was I the know- first one I did. And then Beyond Borders was the same producer and director. But that's when I got sick. I got taken to the hospital and nearly died on Beyond Borders. Is there one, because I know you would, yeah, that's right, Vertical Limit was the first one. But so yeah. what do you, are there two stories that uh, <laughs> that's floating around or there's, I know there's one, but I know the details regarding Beyond Borders, and you were like pretty deathly ill. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I was. Uh, is that the story you're talking about? Or? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. Um... So that was Beyond Borders. So, so I'd done Vertical Limit in New Zealand for them in '99, and that came out did well. And then in 2001, uh, the same producer and director um, had a Oliver Stone um, written film uh, starring Angelina Jolie and Clive Owen that uh, required an Australian um, to be in there as well. So they asked if I'd come over and do it. I said, yes, of course I will. And so I was supposed to be in Africa and then uh, uh, Thailand to shoot. And so I got to, um, got to Namibia in, uh, in Africa. And they were two weeks in and two weeks behind. So they were running behind. So they said to Clive Owen and I, look, here's $1,000 US. Just go and spend the weekend by the pool. <laughs> uh, try, try to get your tan up, you know, because we're supposed to be in Africa for the last five years, and you know, so we just ordered room service and just, you know, cocktails by the pool. Forty-eight hours later, thousand <laughs> dollars US goes a long way, and so we were just absolutely shit-faced. And then my first day of shooting was Monday, and uh, so I went to bed Sunday night. Said see you later, Clive, and got up seven o'clock Monday morning to go to work, and um, and just felt this amazing pain in my guts, and then started to vomit. Ooh. And it turned out I had severe acute pancreatitis. Uh, which Nothing is, to sneeze at. Yeah. No, nah, mate, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. It's it's unbelievable. And uh, two days later, I was off the film uh, at a jet ambulance down to Cape Town. I was in intensive care for 13 days. Um, yeah, so, so I lost that film, obviously. Oh, and, man. Uh, and had to stop drinking as well. So it, it was a life changer. But um, look, it, it was, yeah, it looked, I, it was a lot to, to unpack after that. But you know, at the time, it was like, oh my god, my career's over and whatnot. But um, but it actually made it made a big difference because it, it stopped me drinking at that stage. I was a, a full tilt alcoholic. I was taking a lot of drugs, a lot of booze, um, you know. And so then I, I stopped drinking, and, and that changed my life because as we're talking about about kids before, I would never have gotten married, would never have had a kid, 
Um, I've still just been drinking and drugging my way through life. And so it, it was a, a real, you know, stop and wake up to yourself, Steve, kind of moment. It's great. Yeah, look, there's a, you know, there's that saying that uh, life teaches you um, the things you most need to learn. Um, you know, it's hit us all. But so how do yeah. you, how do you go these days? You haven't, was there a moment where you kind of went, ah, no, challenge accepted. I'm going to go back and try a drink or. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, the funny, the, when, when, when the doctor, uh, Elizabeth, I can't remember her name, but she said to me, she said, you know, strong South African accent, you'll never drink again. Sounds like a challenge. <laughs> and she just put her head in her hands and went, oh God, what have we got here? So now look, I went, seven, I went seven or eight years without a drink at all, but um, it was Jeremy Sims' fault. Jeremy Sims, who directed our last train to free That's right. He, he came over with, oh, yeah, with um, uh, there was a fight, a Costa Zoo fight, I think, which I'd bought on a pay-per-view and so I invited yeah. a few mates over and Sims, he came over. At that stage, he was in the doghouse with his missus, so he brought over this alcohol-free beer Nice. She left in my fridge. And so I'd had a drink for seven years. And they, they went home the next day. And then I'll play cricket the next day. I got home from cricket. And after cricket, I often feel like a beer. And I went, oh, I'll have one of Simsy's, you know, alcohol-free beers. <laughs> so I ripped the top of it, got halfway through it. I went, this tastes amazing. Oh, 4.8% alcohol. <laughs> and so I was just sort of waiting for something to happen and nothing happened. And so I went to the doctor the next day and told him. And he said, oh, no, you'd be right. Look, you know, how long has it been? I said, seven years. He said, oh, you'll have a lot of scarification over your, your pancreas now. You probably have a beer or two after cricket. That's fine. So I went, sweet. So <laughs> Brilliant. Basically, two beers every night, pretty much occasionally more. But I, I do feel it. Look, if I do have too, too many, look, it's a really good just moderator. You know what I mean? So yeah. it means I can still have a nice glass of wine with a, with a nice steak or a, a beer after cricket, but I can't get smashed. And so I sort of look after my body and look after my brain. So it, it's all right. In that sense. Now, I know you're a, you're a massive cricket fan. Um, apart from footy, but so I apologize because uh, my extent of cricket goes as far as the twelfth man. Um, <laughs> but I love Billy yeah, Birmingham. Very loved him, mate. Loved him. Yeah, yeah. I grew up listening to, to yeah, his stuff. Absolute fun. legend. Yeah. So look, I, I I'm hoping you can indulge me, and this is definitely going to be the last one because I've taken so much of your time, and I really do appreciate this. And I hope you've yeah. enjoyed yourself, mate. I have, mate. I have. Yeah. Look, I want to end this by honoring the late great James Lipton. Um, from the inside the actor studio uh, so he used to always end his interviews by asking 10 questions right. now he would also give credit that the original list came from this french talk show host called bernard pivot um, right. as well as note that and i'm sure remains probably like just cursing at me in french going that's how you pronounce it so i'm sorry that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh it, it originally also came from the french novelist originalist from the french novelist marcel proust um, but I'm going to use James Lipton's original 10. So I right. hope you've never been asked these before. I've got no idea what you're talking about. So, so all right, here we go. So James right. Lipton's question is, whatever comes to mind, is this 10? Okay. What is your favorite word? From. What is your least favorite word? Pulpit. Pulpit, P-U-L-P-I-T. Okay. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Collaboration. What turns you off? Selfishness, judgment. What is your favorite curse word? Fuck flaps. What sound or noise do you love? Rain on the roof. What sound or noise do you hate? People swallowing. <laughs> yeah, particularly drinking water. There's something about it. <laughs> I'll try to keep the uh, swallowing to a minimum. Please, please. 
what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Long distance train driver. What profession would you not like to do? Toilet cleaner. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Can't believe you made it. <laughs> that, that's it, mate. Thank you so much, Steve. I hope you, they're not mine. They're James, his alliteration. I've always loved yeah, yeah. them. Thank you so much, man. I just knocked the microphone. <laughs> that's all right. I um, feel like I need more time on those. It's sort of, it's a bit. Oh, rushed, look, sort of, no, no, no. Yeah. The, the best way but to answer think- them is with what comes through because, uh, I guess I meant so. to help you kind of like unravel and just get down. Oh, is that right? Well, you better send me this through so I can see what I need to <laughs> stop unraveling. No, man. Look, thank you so much. Um, I really hope, again, that you have enjoyed yourselves. I really have, Jose. Thank you. Thank you, man. I've had a ball. And to everyone else at home, you know, look, it is an extremely difficult time. Um, so while the rest of Australia is currently in lockdown, just everyone stay safe. Be kind to each other. Yeah, be kind to each other. That's the thing, isn't it? Just really look after each other, you know? I mean, that's what it's all about, yeah. And until next time, ciao. Thanks for listening to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film. Subscribe to hear all future episodes. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review. For more info, please visit Diary of a Crowdfunded Film on Facebook.